Welcome to the Sword and Trowel podcast. The Sword and Trowel is a podcast of Founders Ministries, and Founders exists for the recovery of the gospel and the reformation of local churches. I'm Tom Askell. And I'm Graham Gundon. And we're joined today by our good friend, Dr. Tom Nettles, who is in town lecturing for the Institute of Public Theology, uh, doing part one of church history. Tom, thank you for joining us again on the Sword and the Trowel. Oh, my pleasure. How are your lectures going? Well, I have not had the courage to ask the students how they think they're going. <laughs> well, yeah, I but, have. I've uh, asked them, and I've gotten great feedback. So, oh, good. Yeah. Well, well it's, it's, it feels good to go through church history one again and to remind myself of so many of the things that the early church went through and how yeah. it responded in so many different situations. And I'm, I'm reminded that the church has to do that in, in every age. Yeah. And if mm-hmm. we can engage it, with as much uh, grace and with much concern for internal spirituality of the church and for external witness and, and duplicate the spirit of the early Amen. church in that, then we'll be Amen. real close to the will of God. And we need to do that today, yeah. especially. So, uh, exactly. yeah. Well, good. Appreciate you doing that. We got a few things to talk to you about before we get into a conversation with Dr. Nettles about history and specifically Baptist history, more specifically, uh, Baptist history here in America in the last 40 to 50 years or so. It'd be, uh, we've had private conversations about this last several days been very, very beneficial. But I want to remind you, if you've not already signed up for What is Man, a Biblical Anthropology Conference, January 19th through 22nd here in Southwest Florida, do that. Uh, the registrations are coming in re- very rapidly. We expect to sell out. So encourage you, if you've thought about signing up, to do so without delay. And then we also have a founder's hat. Yes. So, Graham, uh, you're going to have to introduce this. This is my favorite piece of founder's swag. Uh, <laughs> and down here in Florida, this is key because it's got the nice breezy back. And, you know, if, so if you want to broadcast your Baptist bona fides and you want to be stylish <laughs> at the same time, go on the website and get one of these hats. Now, is that a discounted hat because the little logo's off center? This is one of the, the things that didn't That's come what off makes the press, it cool. right? That's what makes it's it cool. It's designed to be yeah, that yeah. way. Okay. Well, obviously, I didn't Tom have does any, not design our sweat. <laughs> I didn't have any hand in the design. Probably that's Hannah's doing, I'm guessing. But uh, yeah, so you can go and get that. And we also have some t-shirts and mm-hmm. coffee mugs as well, the IOPT coffee mug and uh, founders mugs. Burgundy. Uh, yeah, we actually had somebody call the other day about the mugs. They were so impressed with them. They wanted to make their own style mugs based on founders and I think that was a compliment. So, yeah, why don't uh, they just use the Founders Mug? Yeah, that's right. Well, if you're a member of the Founders, Founders Alliance and you support Founders regularly, we want to thank you, too. This podcast is capable or possible because of that and the other things we do. So, Tom Nettles, thank you for joining us today. And uh, we are just a few weeks out from the recent Southern Baptist Convention. And mm-hmm. so you and I and you and I have others, we met with some pastors today, have been talking about that. And it's fascinating to get your perspective. For those that don't know, you and Russ Bush wrote the book that supplied the intellectual firepower and the historical and theological insights that really undergirded a lot of the uh, conservative resurgence. I had one of the key leaders of the conservative resurgence tell me that that book was pivotal. It was Mm. instrumental in what God did back in the 70s, 80s, and 90s in the Southern Baptist Convention. So you bring to uh, Baptist life today, a perspective having lived through things, but also having researched and thought and taught and written about these things uh, more than anybody else that I know. So uh, give us your take on, man, uh, what's going on today in Baptist life in America? Well, I think we're in a time that's a real challenge. These, <clears throat> these challenges have come before in different forms, and they usually in any age come up in a different form, but there are always similarities to them. 
And uh, we've had challenges before, but today we have one in which there uh, seems to be a central theme of oppression, at least the way I've, I've analyzed it, and we see it developed within theories of social justice and intersectionality, critical race theory, and now even in the sex abuse uh, issues. Uh, there, there are moral issues involved in these, and certainly in the sex abuse issue, every time there's a genuine case of that, that is a, a horrid violation of, of Scripture, uh, and everyone should be concerned about it. Uh, but at the same time, there are biblical principles in each one of these things. So when you're dealing with ideas of justice and uh, equity and fairness and nobility of spirit and all of these things, there's a kind of definition that begins to develop within these movements that may or may not be consistent with biblical definitions mm -hmm. of them. And I think that our task today is, is really sort of, it's a difficult and a subtle task, but nevertheless, it's necessary because so much of the vocabulary is, is similar. Uh, so we are, I think that we are in a, a genuine point of having to do creative uh, investigation, theological investigation of the things that are being demanded of us. Uh, and if there is legitimate claim on our our energies and on our repentance, we may need to be willing to do that. But if there are false claims and false definitions of righteousness and justice, then we need to resist them. Mm -hmm. And we need to resist them in, in a way that is godly, but also is very uh, clear and forceful. Because in, in many ways, in all of these things, uh, the gospel is at stake. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but in resisting today, uh, those things you just described, when the narrative is such that in order to be loving or just or to care, you've got to go along with yeah. the narrative. To resist that puts you in the crosshairs of um, a lot of energy and a lot of determination to cancel and to say, well, then you are just for uh, mistreatment of women or you are for racism or you are for these other expressions, expressions of injustice. When I don't know anybody in the Southern Baptist Convention or any pastor anywhere who is not radically opposed to all of those things and who would say those are an abomination and we ought to stand against them. But you can't make that case very easily, and you certainly aren't going to try to make that case if you don't have some courage to stand up and right. say, you know what, um, no, you're wrong about that. And, and you need to have very clear thought about it too. It, yeah. it can't be just a reaction that that doesn't sound right. To me, yeah. you, you, you've got to have good reasons that you can state for objecting to particular aspects of each one of these things. <clears throat> if, if critical race theory, social justice uh, are opposed to racism, we need to say, yes, we are too. We're opposed to racism. But if some of the <clears throat> principles within it actually promote racism, promote favoritism, promote division, uh, promote false views of righteousness, then we need to say, no, that's not right. That's mm -hmm. not the way you get at the truth. You don't get at the truth through error. Yeah. You only get at the truth through doing things according to biblical revelation. And, and that's the point at which I think a lot of good study has been done and good writing has been done on it, but more we need to keep doing it that way so that we can deal with what the perceived problem is. If there's a real moral problem of racism, it needs to be dealt with, but it needs to be dealt with according to biblical categories. 
Yeah, you know, uh, Graham, I mean, you and I and, and the fellow elders at Grace, we've had to deal with these things in all those categories at different times when things have come up in the life of the church. And one of the one of the areas where we've tried to keep getting clarity and coming back to, because you don't want to lose sight of it, is what happens if you buy into this narrative that's been driven by the social justice movement of this is what it looks like and this is what's required to be just or to be loving or to be merciful. If you buy into that, you actually cut people off from mm-hmm. real justice and love and mercy that's found in the gospel. I mean, again, we've had a lot of experiences like that, but could you just articulate uh, for folks that are listening and for us before we go further, I mean, how does the gospel has something to say about all of those areas and what happens to the gospel when we just say, oh yes, you're the, you're the perpetually oppressed, you're the perpetually oppressive and that's yeah. how we've got to move forward. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. I think we um, begin to um, put these categories, we put, begin to stock them with virtue. So if you're perpetually oppressed, well, then you're a, a virtuous person mm-hmm. by necessity. And if you're an oppressor, well, then you've lost all virtue. Um, but that's not how scripture deals with oppression and oppressors. Um, the scripture is clear that all are uh, mm-hmm. lack virtue. All people are sinful. All people are depraved. And, and so if you cut people off who are oppressed, um, from a recognition that they themselves are sinful, they may not be sinful in mm. the in the circumstances that they find themselves in, right. but they are a sinful person and they need the grace of God. And if you tell the oppressor that you are irredeemably non-virtuous, you are ir- irredeemably sinful because you're an oppressor. Again, you're cutting them off from the gospel as well. And so we need to be be able to bring the grace of God, the grace of the gospel, to the oppressed, and the mm-hmm. grace of the gospel to the oppressor as well, and deal with them biblically. I mean. I think part of the problem is we've not, the, the church has not been speaking to the issue of justice as clearly as we ought to have been when it mm-hmm. comes to some of these public issues, it comes, comes to some of the, even these political issues. And because there's been a vacuum there, the church hasn't been speaking to these issues. Well, then worldly ideas kind of crowd, crowd into this vacuum. And so everyone starts to kind of hear these worldly ideas and the church says, wait on, wait, wait a second, hold up. That's, that's not right. And he who states his case first so- <laughs> sounds right. He seems right. And now the church is kind of coming in behind and saying, Hey, wait a second, this isn't right. And now the, the church, people who are trying to proclaim the gospel in these situations, they sound like they're antagonistic mm-hmm. uh, to these good, um, these, these good things that people want to do, like free the oppressed and be gracious to the oppressed. One of the things that we've tried to emphasize here at Founders for many, many years is law and gospel. It's an area that seems like it uh, is not given the right um, appreciation that it deserves. It's, it's foundational to so much that the Scripture teaches, and if you're not straight on law and gospel, then you're going to mess up, mess up on a lot of other things. And that's, I think, at the heart of, or foundationally, uh, what's wrong with a lot of these approaches to try to correct injustices, is they don't start with, this is what God says is just and unjust, and this is God's remedy for dealing with injustices, and this is the justice that is available through God's remedy in Christ, the, the righteousness we have in Him. So it's it comes back to just kind of basic biblical teaching. Now, this is not, oh no, we got these problems, we got to come up with something new. No, we need to take what God's taught us and see how it applies to these new iterations of, of trials and difficulties and struggles that people are going through. Yeah, yeah, because, well, what? Go ahead. I was going to say, if you, if you really care for the oppressed, I mean, the scriptures talk about where freedom comes from, where liberation comes from, where, how you can be free from oppression. 
And that's through the gospel. Now, there are certainly physical and temporal realities mm-hmm. we need to be concerned with. But uh, first and foremost is spiritual oppression that we need to be concerned with. And so uh, preaching the gospel to those who face oppression is, is needs to be first and foremost for mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Did you want to... Uh, yeah, but I've forgotten what I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> I, I got, feel so much I got so, inter- so interested <laughs> what Graham was saying. Yeah. Well, it, <clears throat> mine seemed to be a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I, the last thing that anybody who really cares about people who have been mistreated or abused is cutting them off from the gospel. Mm-hmm. I remember now. Okay. Yeah. That's your lead in, so okay, go ahead. Okay, that's it. Uh, you were mentioning law and gospel, and these things are so fundamental. We would never say the church should seek to have the government enforce the first table of the law, mm-hmm. defining who God is and, and, and punishing people for idolatry or things like that. But you can't have the second table of the law and have any kind of stable society. I mean, you, you've got to say, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not uh, steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. Mm-hmm. All these things. You have to honor relationships. You have to honor truth in the courts. You shall not bear false witness. And we even, we even have things with thou shalt not covet because we look at the degrees of, of intention and the degrees of internal hate that may uh, exist before a crime and the planning. And so that gets into covetousness and the motives of the heart. You just can't have a society that's built on that. And so I think that we have to emphasize those things. And there shouldn't be anyone in any civil society that objects to those laws being the stable foundation of a society. Then it comes. It becomes the the the, uh, the obligation and the privilege of the church to try to explain more about what those things mean. Like, thou shalt not kill. Uh, recently, this is so relevant because of abortion. Mm-hmm. And the question is: Is abortion killing? Yeah. And it's not just a theological issue. With the church, it should be a deeply theological issue. We should recognize that, yeah, the Bible teaches that from the point of conception, that is a human being, that is a person, and to take that life is indeed killing. It is homicide. Mm-hmm. But I think that now we can demonstrate, even within the, the parameters of what people will accept as science and as, as demonstrable fact, that at conception you have a being that nothing will be added to that conceived thing, that, that, that moral being that is already conceived, and that it should be seen as a, as a person. And so I think that we can make our case, if we get the idea established that there is law that governs a just society, mm-hmm. and then if we can actually begin to define what is included within that law that should relate to every person, then that will, uh, that will, that will help in the kind of... Um, formative and moral dialogue that we should be having within the society. Yeah, you know, I think what we do when we mm-hmm. fail to do that, when we fail to bring the law of God to bear on, on the issues that we face, uh, we just kind of accept uh, a worldly, secular paradigm for understanding these things and what we're doing is we're healing the wounds lightly. Yep. Uh, we can agree on what the problems are, mm-hmm. but if we just accept what the world says the, the solution to the problems are, we're healing the wounds, wounds lightly. So, for instance, when it comes to the abortion issue, um, if we're not willing to just call it murder, right, then we're not willing to uh, protect uh, the the unborn. We're not willing to give them equal protection under the law. Um, we're not willing to prosecute and criminalize abortion, both those who have committed the abortion, the, the doctors, the physicians, and then also the mothers who have consented, willingly consented to it. 
um, what we're doing is we're healing the wound lightly, right? If we, if we think that it's just about, well, we need to help these mothers who are in need, and which is certainly true, if it's just about that, and we're not dealing with the fact that our society has gone crazy with sexual promiscuity, we're healing the wound lightly. When it comes to the sexual abuse uh, task force that we've uh, been addressing in the Southern Baptist Convention, um, if we, for instance, there was a resolution that was brought out, I forget which number, during the convention, in which we were to calling on state governments to make it a crime for a pastor or somebody in church leadership to have a sexual relationship with somebody, somebody in church membership. Um, and now I don't know about the motivation behind that resolution, but I think, again, we're healing the wound lightly. We're not going far enough. It should be a crime to commit adultery in our nation because that's what God's justice says. And so when we accept the, the world's ideas of what is abuse, what is not abuse, how do you solve these problems, we're not going far enough. What we need to do is we need to take the law of God and apply it to these issues. I think it is highlighted in the abortion thing, certainly in the adultery uh, sexual issue as well. But we saw it. All three of us were at the Southern Baptist Convention in Anaheim. And we saw it when um, Brent Leatherwood, who's the acting president of the ERLC, he just kept dodging the question that was pressed to him. And he said, you're not going to get me to say that we ought to put mothers behind bars. And again, that sounds very sympathetic, got a lot of applause, and people appreciated it. But another messenger finally got to the microphone and said, well, you know, you said that abortion is sin. Can you tell us what law of God it violates? You know, in what way is it sin? Because sin is lawlessness. God defines what's righteous and sin. And uh, Brent Leatherwood, for whatever reason, didn't want to answer it or didn't answer it, but he called upon uh, one of the trustees, I think maybe the vice president, uh, Kevin Smith, who came and, you know, Kevin was a little bit incredulous. Maybe he hadn't been following everything that had been going on. And he said, it's the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill. You know, he kind of like, duh, everybody knows that and walked off. And I think people maybe not paying close attention thought, well, good night. You know, why in the world that messenger doesn't get that? That's not the point. It's the acting president of the URLC that doesn't, doesn't get that. doesn't get it, right. Because, you know, sympathy to <clears throat> women, they've been abused and they, they're victims but they're also complicit in this, and that does, that's not cold-hearted. But if you tell somebody who's complicit in sin that they're not complicit in sin, they're not responsible, you cut them off from the only source of healing and forgiveness for sin, yeah. which is the gospel. Yeah. I don't need Christ if I'm only a victim and mm -hmm. I have no culpability. And we've seen this across the board in all kinds of issues, but it is highlighted, I think, in the abortion issue and especially what we saw happen out in Anaheim and that little exchange. So, you know, you can go online and look at all the, the sessions and find the ERLC report and catch that video clip of where that exchange took place. But I think it highlights mm -hmm. what we're talking about here in the confusion and the need for clarity. I'm interested in, uh, Tom, especially your take on the SBC. I mean, you were in Anaheim. And there are people who've been raising concerns. We've raised concerns here for years, last few years, about the direction of the SBC. Um, I've talked to pastors today on a Zoom call with many of them. I've had multiple phone calls and texts with pastors across the United States over the last couple of weeks, all having concerns. And you brought some perspective uh, to this from your historical analysis in comparison to what happened with the first conservative resurgence. L let me read a statement from Herschel Hobbs that um, Mark Coppinger, our friend and another professor at the Institute of Public Theology, 
uh, mentioned in an article that he released recently. He, he talks about interviewing Herschel Hobbs about you know what what happened in the conservative resurgence, and was it necessary? Could it have been avo- could it have been avoided? And so here's what Herschel Hobbs says: We heard protests, not many at first, but we heard some protests, but we didn't listen. I said we didn't listen. I am a party to it, just like anybody else who was more or less in the thick of things. Then we heard more, but we still didn't listen. After all, everything was going fine. The seminary enrollment was up, cooperative program was up, evangelism was up, new churches and all. You know the old saying that if it's working, don't fix it. And the point he goes on to make is we didn't listen to the folks who were raising serious concerns, and by the time those concerns were taken seriously, We'd gone so far down bad roads, we had to have what's now referred to as a conservative resurgence. Now, yeah. now you've put a timeline on that for me, but I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, your response to that Well, I think statement. That, that, that statement, that's, that's a wonderful quote, and what he's doing is he is giving a very condensed version of exactly what happened for at least 20 years, and probably before that, because mm-hmm. Elliot at Midwestern Seminary didn't just arise de novo out of having no teaching. He that's was Ralph his, Elliott, a professor at Midwestern. That's right, that's right. Ralph Elliott, who, was, who, was, who taught at Southern Seminary for a while, was trained at, so, uh, at Southern Seminary under Clyde Francisco, mm. uh, and then went to teach at Midwestern. He is the one who talks about the issue of doublespeak. Mm. Uh, this is something that he had learned that was presented to him at the Southern that, that then was in the middle 50s, that you can say one thing in the MDiv class, you can say something else in the PhD class, you say something else to the convention. In the pulpit, yeah. Yeah, in the pulpit. <laughs> uh, but the people who are being trained to, to teach are being taught theories that do not at all, are not at all consistent with the confessional biblical exegetical theology that normally is present within Baptist churches and that Baptist preachers believe and that the Baptist laymen believe. So they were being taught something different. And when Elliot got to Midwestern Seminary, he decided, good for him, that was dishonest. That wasn't a good way Mm -hmm. to live. And so he began to teach to his MDiv classes and write in a book these conclusions that were drawn from higher critical theories the basis of which is that literature develops within a cultural, within within a cultural context, and there are messages that literature tries to convey, but the particular narrative and story does not necessarily have to be true if there's sufficient mm-hmm. information to get the message across. And so he wrote, wrote a book called The Message of Genesis, in which he applied these higher critical literary theories to his biblical interpretation. He had already begun to teach this at Midwestern, and his students were becoming alarmed. And this might be what Hobbes is referring to, that uh, they they were talking to us, but it was only a small group, and we didn't Mm -hmm. listen. And I think that probably means this group of students at Midwestern that were upset. And then finally, it got out into the convention more with uh, the book by Ralph Elliott, in which he set forth these theories that the, the Genesis does not have to be historically true for the religious message of it to, to get across. Well, of course, inevitably what happens is the religious message itself changes when, if it's dependent upon the historical veracity of something. And if you don't believe the historical veracity, then eventually you're going to change the message itself. But it, it began to, to go beyond Midwestern when Broadman published the message of Genesis. And people who analyzed that and said that that is not consistent with the 
a, a healthy understanding of the inspiration of Scripture, Broadman withdrew it. Uh, and then the Midwestern trustees studied the issue, and they came out with like nine statements, the very first of which said that the historical critical method of biblical interpretation is seen as a valid method of interpretation. It's a helpful analytical tool. It is a helpful <laughs> analytical tool. Uh, not realizing that the analytical tool demanded certain substantial changes for the tool to work properly. Amen. The tool you yeah. choose matters. That's right. And so they withdrew the book from publication, and the trustees asked Elliot to promise not to republish the book. See, they just didn't want trouble. It's okay for Elliot to teach there. They didn't want him to republish the book. Well, he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't promise not to republish it. He didn't have any intentions of doing it at the time. Uh, but he wouldn't promise, and so they dismissed him. But it wasn't for a theological reason. It was for insubordination, it, mm. that he wouldn't do what the trustees told him to do. And so in the, in the very year that uh, this is going on, Broadman is planning the Broadman commentary. And they come out then with the, the Broadman commentary somewhere around 19, the first volume around 1971, uh, another s seven, eight years b beyond th that. And the first volume is exactly like Eliot. The first volume written by the, the guy Davies in, in England says that, you know, the message of Genesis is something that's not dependent upon the historical veracity. It's probable that God never told Abraham to offer Isaac. Uh, this was the psychological effect of his having lived in Ur of the Chaldees, and he wanted to know if he was as devoted to his God as those pagans were mm. and offering their children. So what this is really about is not any symbol related to the God giving his own son later, but it's just that God does not demand sac sacrifice. Mm. And so you, you, you just sort of rip the heart out of the narrative by denying its historicity. You, you can't defend Abraham's faith in the New Testament in the way Paul does and the way Hebrews does even in fact Hebrews says that God God Abraham concluded that God was able to raise the dead. I mean it's a theological conclusion that he says Abraham was drawing from this. And so you can't do something like that and it not affect the whole corpus of scripture. Well Gwen Turner from California uh, brought up a lot of these quotes in a convention and made the motion that uh, volume one be withdrawn with due consideration be withdrawn and rewritten with a due consideration to the conservative viewpoint and the convention voted to do it. Then the next year, he brought back other evidence that, that those, those theories were present within each volume, mm -hmm. not every writer. Yeah. I mean, there were some really good writers in the Broadman Commentary, but there, are a lot, there was enough of them so that every volume was stained in that way. But the convention did not withdraw the entire commentary at that time, and it maintained the introductory articles that had been written like peop by people like Clifton Allen, who rejects uh, verbal inspiration, says inerrancy is silly, and it gives all the reasons it can't be true. And so you still got the same problem. And that's what he means, they spoke louder and we still didn't listen. Mm -hmm. that's, and that's what happened. And so when, the, when that was not withdrawn, that's getting up to around 74, 75, that is, is when people began to meet and say, we're not going to change anything unless we actually can gain control. It was an issue of control, sure. but not just for control purpose, not for power purpose, for change. Unless we can get, can get control, this is going to keep going, and more and more of our students are going to be trained in light of those things, and it's going to destroy the gospel and destroy our churches. That was a concern. Mm -hmm. 
And so the conservative resurgence began then in 79. So you've got from 59 to 79 dealing with this issue. Uh, but for whatever criticisms people may have about individuals involved in that, and I think probably there's been too much criticism of that in light of our of virtue signaling for ourselves. But nevertheless, for whatever criticisms may legitimately be brought to that, there were people who put their lives on the line, their careers on the line, for what was clearly at that time a theological issue, a gospel issue, a truth issue. And they saw it through, and it changed. I was teaching seminary before the conservative resurgence. I was teaching seminary after the conservative resurgence. And I can just tell you from the standpoint of personal experience that the whole ethos of seminary education was different and the kinds of students, what the students were interested in was different and their openness to theological training was different and and almost voracious uh, and their openness to uh, honest exposition of text and so it led us into uh, further theological discussions and so I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is we don't need to despair if there's something that discourages us at the present time. If the right kind of energy from the right kind of motives is put into it, it can make a difference and it can improve the overall impact of what we do jointly as churches in the Southern Baptist Convention. It can improve it uh, and make things more sound. Yeah, and there's so much there. Man, would love to have a couple hours just to unpack uh, what all the intrigue was or some of those intrigues in that 20-year period. But when you think from that to today and where the SBC is today and some of the things that have been talked about for the last four, five, six years that seemingly are not gaining traction, at least in some sectors of the SBC. I mean, we've, again, talked about this. All of our elders went to Anaheim. And uh, I've heard this same story told by people who attended for the first time and a couple of our elders were there for the first time at a convention and were disillusioned at just the way uh, messengers were treated and things that were done. And so there's a great sense on the part of many, again, I, I don't know how many I've heard from dozens of churches and pastors who said, we're done, we're out of here, we're not gonna stay, it's too, you know, it's too far gone. Um, but that perspective of 20 years yeah. back then, we probably don't have that same window because of news cycles and things today. But how do, you, how do you negotiate that? How do you think about it when people say, man, it's a conscience issue for me and for our church. We cannot stay apart yeah. of something that is going down this road. Well, I think that every person has to honor a well-informed conscience. Yeah. We have to recognize sometimes our conscience might not be as well-informed Mm-hmm. As, it, as it needs to be. But to go against conscience is neither is never good. Yeah. Uh, and so if a person's conscience is informed as much as it can be and, and the person is convinced that it is a compromise of principles, it's a compromise of honesty, it's a compromise of truth to stay connected with this, then, of course, they, they've got to do what they think. I just hope everyone will realize that no matter what human connection you have, you are going to be confronted with some disagreements and you're going to even be confronted with some cases of conscience. And the, the issue is whether we are willing to work to engage the problem in such a way as to change it 
so that we will no longer have a problem with conscience? Mm -hmm. Can we engage it enough for the sake of others and for the sake of the kingdom? Can those things become a part of our conscience? Can those things become a part of the way we reason about things? Am I just going to abandon this and let all those people who are wrong have it? Or is there a way that conscientiously I can engage this so that all the work that has been built up through these, uh, these, these decades and all the good that can be done can be salvaged to the glory of God? Can that be a part of a person's conscience? Mm. I think it can. Uh, I wouldn't try to speak for any, person, any other person, but uh, I think that if we look at the en- entire fabric, like what, when, when Paul saw things going on at Corinth that he simply could not abide and that were wrong and that were against his preaching, did he just say, shh, I'm not having anything else to do with them? No, he wrote them a second letter mm-hmm. and, and talked about the things that they had done and commended what they had done, but then continued to talk to them again about other things they must do. And so I think it is, an, is, it is an apostolic position to take to realize that people who are teachers within the church, who are gifted at preaching and who are gifted at exposition and all those, those kinds of things, should take it upon themselves to be, uh, to insert matters, other matters of conscience, to insert truth into a situation, to give instruction where, where those things that are wrong can be changed. Mm-hmm. Uh, from my perspective, I mean, I've, I've never been a pastor of a church. I've been interim pastor in churches, but I've spent virtually my whole life in some sort of denominational life teaching in seminary classrooms. And so I've been supported by the cooperative program for, uh, for a couple of decades or more. And uh, I've seen students come in <clears throat> and students that come in that are enjoying certain things now that they would not have enjoyed 20 years ago. They're enjoying teachers now they would have not even had 20 years ago. They're enjoying theological perspectives now they would not have had. All those things would not exist if there had not been people that were willing to stay by it and say, we've got to salvage this for the sake of, the, uh, for the sake of Christ, the glory of God, and for the advancement of the kingdom. And if you have any idea that that can be done, then I think it should become a matter of conscience that uh, while I pastor my church, while I work in the gifts that God has given me and give all my energy to that, to the degree that I can, I'm going to try to help other churches. I'm going to try to help other seminary students. I'm going to try to help missionaries uh, live within a context that is, that is true and honoring to the Word of God. I'm not just going to abandon that whole group uh, to uh, a continued decline into untruth. Yeah. That's really good, and uh, Tom, I'm thinking, you know, you have, uh, you've retired from teaching full-time yeah. in the seminary classroom. Um, I'm not near retirement, but I'm of age that knows that most of my life is behind me, and what I've yeah. got in front of me is not nearly as much. Graham, uh, you're on the other end of that spectrum, so mm-hmm. you're a young pastor. Um, mm-hmm. How does this land on you in terms of thinking how you're going to spend your life and what you ought to do to steward your own energies? Yeah, you know, as a young person, I think um, I can tend towards idealism, as is uh, often common with my age group. Um, you know, as I think about the SBC in particular um, and the questions for, that many pastors and churches face, should we stay, should we go? You know, what what I have to deal with personally, you know, if if 
if I had to make that decision for myself, stay in the SBC or leave, am I leaving as because I don't have the faith um, that this can be salvaged, that the Lord can reform, that the Lord can renew the Southern Baptist Convention? Am I leaving because of arrogance? Like I'm too good for the Southern Baptist Convention. They have all their problems. They have, you know, the theologically, many churches are a mess. And, you know, theologically, I, I'm 1689. I'm, I'm good. I don't want to be a part of that. Um, Am I, would I leave because of laziness, because I don't want to do the work that would be required to see Reformation happen in the Southern Baptist Convention? Those are all questions that I've asked myself personally. I think they're questions that a lot of other uh, younger pastors and church leaders within the convention have to ask themselves, and not even just within the convention, but any church leader, you're, you're part of a, a larger association, whether it's formal or informal, that you have some sort of obligation, duty to help shepherd. Um, and so what are you doing for the Lord in those associations, whether they're formal or informal? And, um, you know, I don't want to, uh, spin my wheels doing something that will never be accomplished. But at the same time, I have to realize that I don't have the vision of God, right? I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know what what all of my labors are going to affect at some point in the future. Uh, what I do need to be concerned about is being faithful with what the Lord has called me to do here and now, and, you know, leave any sort of ideas of prestige or anything like that behind me and let the Lord take care of, of the results. Yeah. That's well put. Well put. And again, it it does come down to individual decision, congregational decisions. I've been saying this since Anaheim and before I've been saying it for years, but there are people that feel like they need to leave and I understand that and just make a wise decision. But, but after a convention, especially at Anaheim, just take a couple of months and think and pray. Don't make a, a decision right now. You don't have to. But uh, if you're in the convention and you're thinking about your future, we'll know that you're not alone in that. But remember that the entities of the SBC belong to the churches. And if you're in a church like that or serving a church like that, then recognize the stewardship that you have right now and take advantage of that and try to communicate as lovingly and as clearly as you can your concerns. Remember Herschel Hobbs, that there were concerns being raised, they just weren't heard. Remember what Dr. Nettles has just said, you know, 20 years, 20 years, these kinds of things were raised. And if there are concerns that some of us think we really do see clearly, we've talked about some of them here, and they need to be addressed, well, they will be addressed. They can be addressed if more and more of us raise our voices in a kind, firm way and say, brothers and sisters, we need to look at this. We need to come to the table and consider these things. 3,500 churches had messengers in Anaheim. There are 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. I'm convinced that the majority of those churches just haven't been awakened. They haven't been confronted with the concerns that we've talked about that we would share with many others. And I have to believe that at least a good number, if not the overwhelming majority of those churches, if they see these issues and understand them, that they will share in the concerns. And we ought to be calling upon our institutions, our entities, and those who lead us to give serious consideration to the things that we're raising concerns about and see what happens. I think also that people who've been to many conventions came away from this one thinking it was the most contentious convention they've ever been to. Mm -hmm. So that should say, don't allow your view of Southern Baptist life and the possibilities of the future depend on the feelings you have about this past convention. It was more contentious for many reasons. I mean, things began to assault us at this convention that 
should take them maybe 10 years to, to come up. They were all at one, at one convention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Goodness, I mean, the things that we had to deal with, plus the, 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 the difficulties that had already been pointed out throughout the year with, uh, with the president's preaching and the things mm-hmm. that. And so several of the, the resolutions came up and, or the motions came up and, and tried to insert the, the, that uh, issue into it, the, the plagiarism issue. And of course, they were immediately cut off. Now, I think that was probably something was planned, mm-hmm. but that that is one of the things behind it, yeah. and it's and it it is what gave the presentation of being just vigorous and, and sort of cold-hearted toward those who wanted to speak from the microphones. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, just just sort of let this one get behind you, I think, uh, because it was per- particularly uh, heart-wrenching. Mm-hmm. in the way some of the things were carried out. Uh, and we just need to look at the larger picture. And as you yeah. said, there are 47,000 Southern Baptist churches. Most, uh, I, w- I would say 98% of those pastors want to preach the Bible. They want their people to grow in grace. They want to do right. Yep. They don't want to harbor any uh, sex abuse in their churches. They don't want any kind of philosophy coming in that would abuse their understanding of Scripture or the gospel. Uh, and it is for the sake of, of keeping that kind of corporate witness together that I think we, we, we need to work together, we need yeah. to work toward it. If, if I could add just one little silver lining to that as well, this convention, um, you know, there was a lot of contention. But if you think that there are major issues in the Southern Baptist Convention that need to be addressed, and then you witness the contention that was at the convention this year, that means that there are thousands of people there that are contending for the truth. Mm. That's why there's contention. And that's that can be an encouraging thing as we as we go forward that, that you know, there are a lot of people, good people in the in the convention, um, who see things the way that we see things and want to see uh, these issues put right. Yeah. Good word. Good word. Well, Dr. Nettles, thank you so much for joining us. It's always a joy uh, to have you here. We were talking about uh, the the pictures on the wall. I don't know if you can see these. You might be able to, but we have all these dead people on the wall, except one. We have (laughs) one living theologian, Baptist theologian on the wall, and that's Tom Nettles. So uh, it's good to have you here in the flesh as well as in the pencil oil, whatever that is, on the wall. So thanks for joining us today. Thanks for tuning in to The Sword and the Trial. We hope that you'll join us again next week.